All right. How you guys doing? I love that the greeting time here at TC, you guys, you guys could go for another two minutes, right? Uh, it's so good at Town Center half the time. We're like, okay, we were a minute in. They're already sitting, you know. My name's Cam Daly. Uh, sorry, not Town Center, Mariner. My name's Cam Daly. I am the uh, pastor of student ministries uh, here at CA Church, and it's so good to see many of you. I recognize so many faces and was even just saying to some of you, it's like, oh, man. I love so many people here, and I don't get to be here enough, and so I'm really, really glad uh, to be here at Town Center, and uh, you know, Brad, Brad says hi. We were texting on Friday a little bit. He was just checking in to make sure things were all good uh, for the message on Sunday, and just saying that he misses you guys, and, and he can't wait to be back, and so I'm glad to be here. I hear that David Wood was here last weekend, uh, and, uh, and so you guys get a little bit of a different flavor today, uh, you know, um, but I'm excited. As we go back into the archives a little bit, uh, into this series, Moses Walking with God. Some of you guys remember that from a number of years ago, if you were part of the port. Uh, and, uh, but I, I was just kind of, you know, thinking through different messages and what I should bring today. And for whatever reason, this one stood out to me. Uh, and so hopefully there's probably a 15% chance that the video of this sermon from three years ago played at the port. I'm not sure. Uh, and if it is, I'm sorry, but also God probably really wants to emphasize this with you. So uh, I'm excited. I'm going to pray for us as we get going, and then we're going to dig into a text found in Numbers 21, a crazy Old Testament story. Uh, and some of you, if you haven't read it before, uh, you, you're going to be wowed, okay? It's, it's just crazy. So uh, let's pray together before we begin, though, and, uh, and just ask God to speak this morning. God, thank you so much uh, for this morning. I thank you for this amazing opportunity to meet in such a beautiful venue uh, beautiful location. I just found myself looking out the window and looking at the lake and the, the leaves are, are changing in the season. Yeah, the rain has been a little rough, Lord, but uh, we're just so grateful to be here this morning as a church community, spending time together, singing together, uh, and worshiping you. God, you're good and you are great, and that's why we sing. And now we, we turn to your word. And I ask God this morning, Holy Spirit, you would be speaking to us You'd be speaking to our hearts. There would be things that you'd be highlighting to us uh, that, that maybe there's, there's something you want us to change. Maybe there's something you want us to do. Maybe there's something you want us to learn. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning as I speak, it wouldn't just be words of a guy, but that you would be speaking to our hearts um, corporately and individually as we dig into your word. And so thank you for this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Hey, well, we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 21. All right. So if you bring your own Bibles, you can turn, turn to Numbers 21. Before we read that text, though, uh, I want to give a little bit of context because I realize that in a day and an age like ours, to say a statement like, you know the story, that's just not true, right? Uh, I know I, many of you, maybe you, you don't know the story. And it's not even from lack of Bible reading. Maybe you're new to this. And so I want to give a little bit of context. We believe uh, that God, you know, in the very beginning, he created a people uh, later on, he chose a people and a leader of those people named Abraham. He says, you're going to be the father. You're going to birth these nations. These nations came to be. And somewhere down the line, this group of people called the Hebrews, who are God's people, they became enslaved in a land called Egypt. Uh, a guy who was, uh, he was born a slave, but ended up becoming the prince of Egypt. Uh, some of you guys, that's a throwback to a Disney movie. He ends up raising up 
uh, fighting the king, the pharaoh of that time, releasing the people, leading them through the Red Sea, heading into the wilderness, and we get into the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, I'm not sure why we call it Numbers. Uh, it has nothing to do with math, but in, in the Hebrew, it's this word uh, Bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. It's the story of the people uh, on their way from there to here, on their way from uh, Egypt to the promised land. Uh, And in this point of the story, they're somewhere between the 20th year and the 40th year. They're frustrated. They've been wandering around in a desert-like environment. They were promised one thing, and yet they're still waiting for it. The food is not very good, right? God, yeah, he's providing their needs, but they're getting sick of manna. Uh, and, uh, and so what ends up happening in this story is we see they begin to grumble a little bit. They begin to get a little bit frustrated with Moses and with God. They begin to second guess him, and they get frustrated with him. And, uh, and so in Numbers chapter uh, sorry, 21, and we're going to start in verse 4. We see the story kind of unfold as these people, and God responds in a way that maybe for many of us in 2019 is a little shocking. So let's read together. In Numbers 21, so it says, From Mount Hor, they set out on the way uh, to the Red Sea and to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food or water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the story continues, but the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we've spoken against you, the Lord, and against, uh, so we spent uh, against the Lord, and we've spoken against you. Pray to the Lord that he would please take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, even when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We find this bizarre Old Testament story. For those of you who've been in the church a little while, maybe you've invited a friend. Cam, why are you sharing this story? Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's the kind of story we like to skip over a little bit. Uh, we look at, you know, it's like, that's why it's in the book of Numbers, right? No one loves math. They're not going to go there. It's gonna, we're just going to leave that alone. Or maybe some of you are wondering, as Moses is writing this, Moses, why? Why would you put this in the book? Like, just omit it. Leave it out. This is a bizarre story. God, you know, like frustrated with his people, say, okay, you're grumbling. All right, send the the serpents from heaven. All right, like, you know, it's just like, you know, send them down, Jesus, right? Like the serpents come, bite the people. Some of them die, the story tells us. Why is it that Jesus, why is it that Moses, sorry, would write this story? Why is it that this story is within scripture? Well, you know, there's something really interesting I want to highlight for us particularly this image of what, what God's response is. He says, take a, a, get some copper or get some bronze and make a serpent, set it on a pole, and anyone who looks at it, they shall live. And I was thinking about this image, and it reminded me of three things. It reminded me of three things. There's something about it that just stuck out to me as I was studying it and I was looking at it. The first thing was this. If you, as you think about it, maybe some of you thought, man, I think I've seen that symbol before. The first thing is, is uh, maybe you've seen it 
on the medic alert symbol, right? Uh, and, and we have this serpent that's wrapped around a stick, and it's, you know, it's, it's red and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and this is one of the first places I saw it. So I used to wear a uh, medic alert bracelet, uh, and, uh, and then twice... I flushed it down the toilet. Um, and <laughs> you know how the story goes, right? You, you come home, you loosen your belt a little bit, maybe, you know, your watch strap. Uh, you come and you go about your business, and then, like, soon you need to go about your business. So you head to the washroom. Things happen there that are unspeakable in church. And then, right, uh, you go to flush the toilet. I don't know if you've ever had this experience with anything before, but you, you flush it. The, the bracelet, in my case, fell off my wrist, hit the porcelain throne, fell into the bowl, and began to flush. And there's like one second. There's one second where you're like, oh man, should I reach for it, right? You think about it, and the answer is no, depending on what is in the bowl with it. Uh, And uh, so this happened on two occasions. I no longer wear a medical alert bracelet, but I have it on my watch, even though paramedics tell me that they don't know how to look for it on there. So um, anyways, pray for me. But uh, there, there was this moment. Now somebody said to me, Cam, why don't you get a tattoo of like the medic alert symbol on your wrist with like your condition? And I was like, man, like I'm a pastor. Pastors don't get snakes on their wrists, right? Unless they're like Dave Johnson or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, like you don't do that, right? Like it's like, you know, if I was to get a tattoo, I get a tattoo like you, Dave. Dave actually said this to me, like King Jesus, right? You know, you walk up to someone in the supermarket, shake their hand. They'd see King Jesus. They'd ask you about Jesus. You'd lead them to salvation. You get them baptized. They become fully devoted followers. It'd be amazing. Or I get a, a, a tattoo like Pastor Mark. I love cats, you know, right? Um, Pastor Brad, rhythm and news for life, right? Uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I'm totally making this up. But, uh, you know, we don't get tattoos of snakes. You know, it's funny, though, because I think about this story and I think about this symbol. Uh, and there was a second place that it came to mind. I think so many of us, we glaze over it just being like, ah, this is ancient kind of talk. But the interesting thing is, is that Jesus actually refers to this moment in, in, in the history of, of Israel, and he refers to this symbol in light of what he would do for us on the cross. Look at this, the most famous verse in history uh, that, that many of you would know. It's found in John 3.16, and it says this, uh, and we'll start in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Interestingly, this is the second thing that came to mind. Jesus refers to this story. He sees it as something of importance. He sees something in this story that relates to himself, that relates to what he would do for us and what he would do for the church. And it's so interesting as I think about all the different stories that Jesus could have chose from, right? Like, there's so many options. (laughs) Jesus, there's so many stories you could refer to outside of this one to kind of relate to and point to what you were going to do for us in the cross. And this is our favorite verse, Jesus. It's on our mugs, right? Like, you know, really, are you going to refer to this story of all stories? But in this story, Jesus sees something that points to himself. He doesn't pick Abraham and Isaac. He could have referred to the Passover. 
Yom Kippur. But Jesus picks one of the strangest choices possible in this wacky book of Numbers, uh, talking about this story where God sent snakes that bit people, and then they made a statue, and everyone that looked at it lived. Why is it that Jesus looks at this story? Why is it that Jesus believes that this story has significance for us uh, when we consider the gospel? Well, there's three things I want to share with us this morning. Uh, the first, for those of you being in church, it's going to be obvious, but I think we all need a reminder is this, is that the effects of sin is death. We see this in the story. The effects of, of sin is death. The second thing is this, is that Jesus is the true healer and savior of the world. Jesus, the true healer and savior. He was back then and he is today. And thirdly, we need to look to him. We need to look to Jesus uh, of all people, we need to look to Jesus for our, our healing, for our saving. And so I want to start with this idea, the effects of sin is death. You see, Jesus uses this story to highlight the gravity of sin, I believe. That when we sin, it requires justice. There's consequences. And sometimes, and, and sometimes spiritually, but also in life, those consequences are death. Interesting, John 3.16, he finds himself in the middle of this conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking about how he can have eternal life. He's asking about how he can have this new life that Jesus offers, uh, offers people. And Jesus takes him back to this story. I think that he wants to remind Nicodemus and us of this, is that when, when we are distrustful of God, when we turn our back on God, when we believe that we could be, do it better than God, it's this thing called sin, recognizing that, that actually that we are dead. We are spiritually dead. Some of you go, well, really, was that sin? But the Hebrew people, they recognize this. Later on in the text, it says, uh, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and spoken against you. There was something in their heart that they recognized that they had, they had broken God's covenant. They had broken relationship with God. They had gone off of the path. They have missed the mark of what God would have for them. He says, we have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and you. You see, they, like us, have sinned. They chose to live a life in opposition or distrust of the creator, the giver of life. And when we choose to be distrustful and grateful towards the one who's given us life, we choose the opposite of that. What, what do we choose? We choose death. If God is life and to choose him is to choose life, when we turn our back on him, we turn our face towards death. We turn our face towards uh, our humanity. And, 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 it, and it doesn't go well from, for us from there. Furthermore, there's consequences for our sin. God has expectations on us as any father for his children. And when we break those expectations or blatantly sin, there are consequences. And we see this from the very beginning, don't we? In Adam and Eve, we, we believe that our origin story is that they were right with God and God gave them everything, full access to everything in the garden. Sometimes people think like, why would God even give like this option? But you have to realize they had thousands, if not millions of different trees and things to choose from. And yet he gives them one, 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 one way in which they can choose to love him by obeying him and they disobey. And it says that from the very beginning, because of what they did, that they were spiritually dead, and then we have actually, as their great-great-grandchildren, have, have lived through the, the repercussions of that decision, and we ourselves choose to reject God and choose our own ways. Some will say, well, is grumbling, complaining, like being distrustful, really like sin? But it's in this time of Scripture that reminds us that, that we are not God. 
and therefore we cannot define what is right and wrong. You see, some of you think this is harsh, but God is both just and he is merciful, right? He's both just and he is merciful. I think that in our day and age in 2019, we love the God of mercy, of grace, of love, of compassion, all these things. But when it comes to justice, we'd rather not look or we think, uh, and, and many maybe of our young people think, I could be a better God. They judge God and they look at him and say, oh, I, I believe that he, he's a judgmental God, an angry God. Uh, I, I could be a better God. I could create a better God than him. And in this story, it's a reminder for us once again that God is the one who gets to define what is right and what is wrong. He gets to draw the line in the sand and say, when we cross that, that we have, we've stepped towards death, we've stepped towards brokenness. And we see this in this story. The people are distrustful of God. They sin against God. And the result, the consequence, as wild as it is, uh, is judgment. And sadly, and the truth is, for you and I is this, is that when we make that same choice, the consequence for us is judgment. And that we, apart from Jesus Christ, we will be judged. But the thing that I love about this story is this, and please don't get hung up on what I've just said, because it's not the end of the story. You see, God is both the one who, who judged the people for their sin, but he was also the one, uh, when Moses intercedes on their behalf, that provides a way for them to have life once again right? He's also the God who is merciful, who says, okay, I'll provide a way that if you would turn back to me, if you would look to this symbol, then therefore you would be healed. Do you see how this story points to Jesus and why Jesus might refer to it? You see, Jesus would, he reveals himself in this metaphor in the same way, right? That, that our God, he does hold account, uh, us accountable for our choices, but he is also merciful to provide a way for us to be healed in Jesus Christ. This leads to our second point, and that is this, is that Jesus is the true healer and savior. You see, the Hebrew people, they miss this, as many of them do today. History tells us that the people, here's what happened in this story, is that God provides this symbol, this snake on a stick, and they look at it and they're healed. But what happens is, is that they begin to worship the symbol instead of the God who provided it for them. In fact, if you read into 2 Kings, what you end up seeing actually is that King Hezekiah, generations later, find that the people are still worshiping this symbol. They're worshiping it as the, the God, uh, and they're worshiping it as their healer. Uh, and, and so Hezekiah actually ends up taking this very literal and real thing uh, with this snake wrapped around a stick and he ends up destroying it to get the people's eyes off of this symbol and to remember it was God. It was Yahweh who was the one who healed them. And, and this is true of us as well. You see, Jesus, I believe why he chooses this story to communicate the greatest truth and the greatest picture of love of what he would do for us is this, is that you see his audience, the Jews, and the audience of the writer of this gospel, John, John was the pastor of, of an area called Asia, Asia Minor. There was a number of different churches that you find in the seven churches of Revelation. And one of them was Pergamum. And in those cities, like the Jews, people had began to worship not just this symbol, but a false god. A false god named Asclepios. Asclepius was the god of healing. And interestingly enough, and remember I said there was three things it reminded me of. The third was this. When I was in Turkey, I remember seeing this symbol. 
And in the, in the temple of Asclepion, people would come and they would lay down in this round room. And you can kind of see it depicted here. And they would be high on opium. And it was said that if a snake was to slither over them, that they were to be healed. I remember just a little while after going to this site and hearing this story, we went to a museum and I saw this picture as well. And this is the god of Asclepion holding in his hand a stick with a snake wrapped around it. You see, from that time forward, people had taken this picture and they began to create a deity. They began to create a God. And so Jesus speaking to the Jews recognizes that the people would remember their mistakes from history. But John, as the author, is also knowing that the Gentiles, the the non-believers that he is writing to, have misplaced their worship, have misplaced their trust, have fixed their eyes on a false God named Asclepios, the God of healing. In fact, people in that day and time, they began to call him Soter. They would call the the god Asclepius Soter, which means savior. You see, Jesus is declaring to them and to us that he is the true healer and he is the true savior. Back in Numbers 21, this was not pointing towards Asclepius, the god of healing, but it was pointing towards Jesus, the God-man who would be lifted up in just the same way to heal us, not just physically, but save us eternally. And we think, man, these ancient people, they're so silly. (laughs) Oh gosh, they worship like a snake on a stick. Like this is just, this is foolish. This is crazy. We can get this uh, kind of, you know, uh, mindset of like, wow, we're so past that. You know, we're so past that. Oh, gosh, they worship multiple gods, right? Like gods of different things. And it's like, this is just like, this is such old stuff. How does this apply to me? Well, I think that, friends, we do the same thing. We call things that are created things. We call things that that are things that, uh, that, that maybe claim to heal us or that could restore us. And we end up looking to it in the same way, maybe look to it and call it Savior. Believe that, that this thing will save me. You see, their missteps, though, friends, is a reminder to us because we in the same way can declare things wrongly, Savior and Healer. We in the same way can put our trust in things that we should not. There are counterfeit healers in our world that, make, uh, that, that we make the mistake of looking to. And like King Hezekiah, I think uh, as I was praying through this, I want to expose what some of those things are. That I, would, that I would show them rightly for what they are. And uh, this is especially hard for me, the, the first one, is I think about counterfeit healers and saviors in our world today. Because one, I, I, I love politics. Like, I really love American politics. I love just watching it. I think it's just dramatic and crazy, and it's awesome, right? And a little sad lately, but, um, right? And then recently with this election, I think what we can, now don't get me wrong, all of us should vote. We should all use that freedom. And I recommend you do tomorrow. But I think that if we as the church and as we have, as Christians will look to these things solely as, as if this party or this leader or this person got on, then it would save us. Then our country would be okay. Then we would be, you know, restored. Then Canada could be all that I would want it to be. I think that we can, we can fix our eyes on these things and we can put our hope in a person or a government being in power. But here's the truth, is that governments rise and fall, empires rise and fall. We need something that is greater. We need something that transcends those things to look to, and it's, it's Jesus. Some of us 
maybe even in this room, and maybe even I have from time to time, would believe if I just had a bit more money, if I had just a bit more money, then I, I would be okay. If I just had more, then I, then I could feel safe. If I just had a bit more of a nest egg, of a pillow, of a cushion, if I was just a, a bit more in the black, then, like, then I would be okay, right? And so we strive and we strive and we strive to get more money, to get more resources, to get more of a cushion. And it's never enough. We want more. We want more protection because we want more stuff and we need to protect ourselves. And we, many in our culture works like 60-hour weeks just to have a little bit more. Maybe more. <laughs> Maybe that's under, some of you are like, I worked an 80-hour week last week. So, you know, and, and we're just striving. We're striving and striving. And I think that in some ways, if we don't check our hearts, we can begin to fix our eyes on the wrong things. I wonder if a counterfeit in our culture might even be education. Education's a good thing. Many of you are educated. I've gotten education. But man, if I, if I just knew more, if I just got that degree, right, uh, then, then, then I could get that job. Then I could have that money. Then I would be respected. Then people would trust me. Uh, then I would be notable. Then I, and, and we continue to fix our eyes on it. I wonder whether maybe some of you from time to time have looked to relationships, Man, if I could just get into a good relationship, then everything will be better. Maybe I'd find healing from my upbringing, from my past, from my previous relationship. Uh, if I was just to found, find the one, if I was just friends with that person, right? Uh, if I just had th- that, that person in my life, then, then I would be okay. Maybe some of you, you, you look to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of the God of my own world and kingdom. I'm the one who's going to save myself. I'm going to be pull myself out of the dirt. I'm going to get myself. I'm, I, I'm going to do it. Me, 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 me. And we can so easily and quickly, I think, begin to look to ourselves. Some in our, our day and age, and you can see this all over the city, especially if you come to Port Moody, it's left, right, and center. It's where I live. Maybe look to the new age, right? Crystals and medicines. Literally, I can find that on my street crystals, medicines, new age teaching. Others maybe look to, to like these new forms and spiritual forms of exercise, believing that maybe this could be the thing that would heal them from their brokenness, their baggage, unlock deeper knowledge, and that, that we seek it and we look to it. Some look to self-help books and to teachers and to self-exploration to find saving and healing. And many of these things are good. Don't get me wrong. Many of these things are good. But I've even found myself from time to time putting way too much stock in these things. Putting way too much stock in, man, if my team, my sports team could make it, if they could win it, then I would be happy, right? Like it would just, finally, the curse would be broken after 50 years, right? You know, it's like, and I think many of us, we, we do this all the time as we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus. And we, we read stories like this and we mock them, thinking how foolish they are. And yet, I find my heart drifting, declaring things Savior, and, and looking to things that were never meant to take that place in my life and my heart as healer. I'm convinced that our enemy is at work. He's continually trying to get our eyes off the true Savior and healer. And as important and crucial and beneficial as many of these things are, and I, I could have kept going, right? Like, these things are not in themselves evil. Don't get me wrong, all right? Like, these are uh, many times, in some of the cases, very good things. But what the enemy loves to do is he likes to take a good thing and he likes to twist it and make it a God thing in our life. 
that we'd place it in the wrong place of our life. So many of us, I, maybe we're wondering, how do I repent then? Like, how do I turn back? I recognize maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you right now that I've done this. I've fixed my eyes on things and people and, and stuff uh, that, that just never should have had that place in my life. How do I repent? Well, friends, we, we look to Jesus. You see, the Hebrew people sinned against God and asked Moses, hey, would you intercede on our behalf? God, would you save us? And God tells Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten by the consequences of their decisions. When he sees it, shall be, he shall live. We have been bitten by the consequences of sin. And what does God require of us to be healed, church? What does he require of you this morning? Does he ask for religion? I don't think so. And we don't see it in, then. Some people think, wow, the OT, it's just full of religion and law and all these things. It's not for me. I don't see a religious solution to this problem. I actually see a grace moment in the history of Israel. I see a grace moment on the cross of Jesus. I see grace for us. I see mercy for us. You see, Jesus, friends, is the greater Moses who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Father, would you make a way for them to be healed? Would you restore them? Jesus is the greater healer who gives his life so that we can not just be healed physically, but eternally. And in the same way that they looked at a statue, and when they looked at it, they were healed. What he is asking of us this morning is so simple. I want you to hear it. He's asking us simply to turn our back to, like towards sin and death and back towards him, to fix our eyes, to look at Jesus Christ, to look at him and him alone. We're meant to look to Jesus. We're meant to look to him. He is the true savior. He is the true healer. There is no one else. There's no one else. You see, there's a story that actually came to mind as I, as I was reading this story. And, and it was the story, the conversion story of a famous preacher in the 18th or 19th century named Charles Hatton Spurgeon. He's one of my heroes. I love him. He's, he was an incredible preacher. Revival broke out in England. But in his biography, he writes this story of, of his, his kind of transformation. And here's what he says. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now if it had not been for the goodness of God sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In the chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister didn't even show up that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. And at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text. And for this simple reason, he had little else to say. The text was this, look unto me. And you will be saved all the ends of the earth in Isaiah 45, 22. He says he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but it didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began, my dear friends, this text is very simple indeed. It says, look. Now, looking doesn't take a great deal of pain. It isn't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. A man doesn't need to go to college or university to look. You might be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man doesn't need to be worth a thousand or for us a million a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child 
can look, but this text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. Yes, look to him, but the text says, look to Jesus Christ. Some of you say, well, I'm going to wait for the Spirit to work in my life. You have no business with this. It's so simple. It says, look to Christ. Look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text by saying this, look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I send to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. Look unto me, O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And the story continues, it says, that he had gone on a great length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes to end his tether. And then he looked at me, and this is Charles Haddon Spurgeon saying this, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance. (laughs) However, it was good blow and it struck right home, he continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey it this moment, you will be saved. He said, I saw it once, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with this one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only had to look and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And I saw the sun. I could have risen in that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. Oh, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. In this story, this testimony, this biography of Charles, we see something so simple and it's true for us as well. Friends, we only need to look to Jesus. (laughs) We only need to look to him. We need not look to any other savior, any other false god, any other thing. The, the brokenness that we experience can be healed, can be restored, can be made new in Jesus Christ. We only have to look to him and him alone. This is the good news of the gospel. I have no idea where All of you stand with Jesus Christ. I know many of you who know him, but maybe there are some of you who need to know this in this moment. For us who believe, we need to put Jesus rightly where he belongs in our heart. But there's some of you maybe here who have never made this decision. And you think that maybe it would require much of you or it would be really hard or difficult. It would take a great deal of pain. Uh, or, or, or maybe it would just be too great a sacrifice to turn and to look to Jesus. But we see this opportunity for you now. It is so simple that for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That if we in the same way would just look to him in Christ alone that you can have salvation today, it's that simple. This is why young children can make this decision. 
And yet, maybe you, highly educated, maybe successful in your business, maybe someone who feels like you have your life together recognizes your need as well because one day we will all face that moment where we will die and we will have to look into the eyes of our Savior and make our plea. And I'm just hoping, I'm wondering, maybe for you, that simple plea could be, I I look to Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. He is my God. My faith, my trust, my hope is in him and him alone. There's nothing else that I can give you, God. There's no other account I can give you by him. And I believe that in that moment, such a simple phrase and something that maybe was a simple moment in October at Evergreen Theater, that moment would change not just your reality now, but forever. This is the offer of the gospel. And so I want to ask us where are you looking? Where are you looking? So we're going to pray for us, and the band's going to come up. We're going to respond with one song, just worshiping Jesus for who he is. If you're that person this morning who wants to give your faith to Jesus, would you just pray this with me, God? I come before you now. I humble myself. I hear your word, uh, and I want to respond. I want to place my faith in you. I want to place my trust in you. This guy's telling me to look, and so I look to you. I look to you today and you alone. I'm sorry for the times that I've looked to other things. I'm sorry, God, for the times that I've gone to a hundred things other than you to be saved. And this morning, I, I look to you. I place my faith in you and I ask God that you would grant me what you promised them and what you've promised us, that you would grant me salvation. So thank you for this free gift. I've not done nothing to deserve it, but God, I look to you. And for those of us who who know Jesus, Holy Spirit, um, right now, would you just even reveal to our hearts and bring to the surface maybe some of the things in our life and our world that we are looking at and looking to other than you? Would you be kind with us, yet would you convict us? Would you help us to reorient our heart? Speak to us, Holy Spirit. God, I'm so grateful that you hear us. I'm so grateful, God, that you heard them <laughs> and you heard our cry and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to take our punishment, to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. And Jesus, we confess that we often do not look to you as a people. But this morning, Jesus, we fix our eyes on you because you and you alone deserve it. We love you. We worship you. And we're grateful for you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.